And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello everybody, welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and on the other side of, uh, well, not the other side, but the bottom part <laughs> of the map is my buddy Scott Gardner. <laughs> I wondered where that was going for a second there. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> it's going good. How you doing? I'm doing good. I like to think I'm at the, the top part of the map, but then there's Canada above me and all of that crap. <laughs> well, I tell you, uh, being at the bottom of the map, it is hotter than hell here today. I don't know what is going on with our weather, but, uh, man, it is just scorching. And, you know, I'm not sure when this episode is going to go up, but as we record this, you know, we're right at the tail end of... Uh, of February, and I'm just thinking, man, if it's like this in February, what is the summer months going to be like? Because it's, whoo, it's nasty hot out there. Yeah, and, and as as you are aware, I am looking to my schedule to see if it makes any sense to be down at the end of July to go to Tampa Bay Comic Con with you boys. Uh, so I may experience the worst of Florida. <laughs> But that we'll would see. be awesome, though. I would, I would very much like that. And um, you know what, I really want to try to do, and and I, seriously, within like the next couple of years, I would like to try to go to the one in. Uh, oh gosh, now I've blanked on where specifically it is. But Heroes Con is that is that Charlotte? I think. I'm not sure. The, I don't know where one that of the one Carolinas. is. The I've one, the one I've been hearing good things about lately, and I think there's a lot of people who we are acquainted with but may not have ever met face-to-face, is uh, Baltimore Comic Con. Oh. Yeah, that one's that one's a possibility as well. You know, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely be down for it. Yeah, I'd have to check the timing of it. And I really want to, at some point on my bucket list, just say I did it, I'd like to go to San Diego. Yeah, you know, I'd... I'd I just really don't have any interest in that one. Maybe, maybe years ago, but everybody I've ever talked to in recent times that has been there has has basically, whether they actively put me off of it, you know, by saying things like "Oh, you just don't want to do that," or you know, just their description of it. Everybody I've talked to has put me off the idea. Plus, you know, for me, it's like if I'm going to California, I'm going to Disneyland, and if I'm going to Disneyland. Then that's all I want to do. I don't want to. I don't want to use my my California time really doing anything else. I mean, I've been out there twice now and done nothing but that, you know. And everybody, you know, is always like, you know, so what else did you do when you were out there? Did you go to Hollywood or did you go here? Did you go? And I'm like, nope. They're like, you did you did a week in Disneyland. It's like, what the hell did you do? And I'm like, I just loved it. That's what I did. <laughs> the answer should be, 
it's Scott Gardner. Have you met him? <laughs> right, exactly. Yep. Well, yeah. you know, we, we've talked about, because I've never been to California. The furthest I got is to Vegas a few, a few years ago. And I haven't been to California, but now Tina's cousin, who's terrific, mm-hmm. uh, recently got a job and relocated out to L.A. And we've been talking about taking a ride out and not taking a ride, take a flight and, you know, visit. And we've talked about the possibility of maybe doing like two days in San Diego because Tina loves the zoo. So we'd have to hit the San Diego Zoo, <laughs> even if it's not. Should I make a joke? With Rocky? <laughs> Just leave it at that. Either they get it or they don't. Um, so, but but even if it's not at the time of San Diego Comic Con, they actually have the Comic Con Museum there now. So I would check that out. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. And then then we were talking, you know, maybe like two days in L.A. and then two days in San Francisco. Kind of do like the three big places in California. And obviously, right. I am aware for people who are listening and, and are on the West Coast and think I don't know, I am aware they're not like right next to each other. Right. <laughs> right. That that would there would be a little bit of traveling involved in getting from one to the other to the other. And then, you know, if, if I get to the West Coast, and this is where it'll probably drive my wife crazy, it's like, well, there's people out there who I'd love to see and spend some time with. I know I, I was talking to uh, Zaki Hassan and Brian Hall one day and saying, you know, well, actually, Zaki, I think, is in L.A. and Brian is in San Francisco and saying, well, if I got out, I'd, you know, I'd love to actually meet you guys face to face. And then there's Derek Crabb, who I'd love to meet face to face. So, you know, there's there's people out there who we would definitely spend some time with. And then my wife would say, I came all the way out here to meet your comic friends. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. So we'll, we'll see what happens if and when we get out there. Yeah, but, I know the next the next time I go out there though, I mean I'm either going to have to I'm either going to have to dial back to Disneyland, which I really don't see happening, or I'm just going to have to go for a shit longer, you know, shitload longer time because there there is a lot of other stuff there that I want to do, not the least of which is um, not long ago, I finally reconnected with uh, an old Air Force buddy of mine that I'd kind of lost track of, and he lives out there. He works at – it's one of the big famous zoos, but it's not the San Diego Zoo, which is like the famous one, you know, or I guess the most famous. It's another one. I, I forget which one it is, but anyway, he works out there, and uh, uh, the last time I was coming out there, I, I really felt bad that I just – I just literally didn't have the time to, to meet up with him and all. And I felt really bad about that. So I was like, well, you know, if, and when we do it again, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to set the time aside. So, but, uh, but yeah, I would encourage you to go out there and, and of course, you know, go to Disneyland and you know whatever else I, I couldn't recommend anything else because I hadn't done anything <laughs> else, but you know, it's definitely worth doing that. In theory, we're a comic book podcast, but I'm going to ask you anyway, what is the essential difference between Disneyland and Disney world? Oh Jesus. Do you want this to be the episode? Cause it could be, <laughs> you know, keep it. Um, let's, let's go for the reader's digest version. And okay. if people are curious Here's... enough, they'll ask us and we'll, we'll extend it right. later if they want us to. Um, Reader's Digest versus so Disneyland's the original park, and it's very small, and it's completely landlocked by the city of Anaheim. So, um, the the essential difference is size, um, because it's hard to imagine today. But I mean, you you have to remember back in the mid '50s when that park was built, 
Disney was not a global conglomeration worth billions of dollars. It was a small startup company owned by two brothers. And neither of them were millionaires or anything like that. So to get the place built, you know, they had to beg and borrow money from basically anybody that would lend them to, you know, lend money to them. So, you know, Walt was only able to build, you know, what he could afford, essentially, which originally was like 160 acres. And so as soon as it opened and became, you know, the worldwide success that it was and everything, all this kitsch started to pop up around a city basically sprung up around it and it drove him nuts because it was a what he called a visual intrusion meaning when you're in disneyland there's a lot of parts of disneyland that if you get up you know at a decent height you can see the city outside the gates now that's for somebody like me you know that that's you know I don't want to say raised on Walt Disney World but you know what I mean used to Walt Disney World and now works there it's just mind blowing to me that that's how it is. Yeah, I I think if I was out there for a thousand years, I'd just never get used to the fact that it's right there in the middle of a city. So you know, there's that aspect to it. You know, Walt Disney World is so big because Disneyland is so small. Um, for me, the the other critical difference is that you know, for for everything that it is, and as wonderful a place as it is, and all the magic and all that. There, there's one aspect where Walt Disney World can never match Disneyland, and that's the fact that Walt practically lived in Disneyland once, you know, well, during construction and especially once it was open. He did not live long enough for even the groundbreaking for Walt Disney World. He never set foot on the place. So th- they can never have that, you know? Mm-hmm. And as corny as this may sound, you know, the the night before we were going out there for, you know, scheduled for our flight for the very first time going out there, um, I was watching one of the old Disneyland specials. I think it was the opening day special. I forget. But anyway, I, I had this like wave of melancholy come over me and I'm like, you know, I'm going to be really disappointed. I just know it. You know, I'm going to get there and it's, you know, it's not the fifties anymore. And, you know, Walt's not there and, everything's different now and i I just i you know why am i doing this why am i setting myself up for this disappointment but you know we we went and it sounds so cheesy but it's absolutely true i felt like i felt his presence there you know what i mean it's just the place does an incredible job of holding on to its its history its heritage its feeling of nostalgia and it does it in a way that um walt disney world i don't even think tries to do that or at least maybe they did but they don't really anymore like when you walk into disneyland i feel like it's still the 50s in a lot of ways like it's still the classic park yes things have changed you know a a lot of stuff's gone and a lot of new stuff's there but essentially I can trick my mind into believing I'm I'm actually in like the quintessential, you know, 50s version of Disneyland in a lot of ways. And so Walt's about, you know, he's there in the park somewhere. When you go into Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World, I don't feel like it's 1971, you know, and I think they very purposely um 
try to make it more modern and and keep it more relevant to the modern audience and, and that's great and i think that's an important distinction between the two because you've you've got the one that's very nostalgic and very classic for people like me that you know love the classic stuff and then you've got one that's more contemporaneous for you know the kids coming up today that could care less about you know the true life adventure films or you know the classic uh, original movies and care more about frozen and moana and all that sort of thing so it's it's that that to me is the big difference is is you've got classic and you've got more modern if that makes sense yeah more modern for these these modern kids who didn't go to the parks until 1971 uh, <laughs> but, but you know i i think so I can totally appreciate your love for the Disney history. And when we've been in the parks together, my wife has commented about how much fun it is going with you because, you know, you're, you're, it's almost like going with a guide uh, who's giving you the history well, as you go you. through it. So I definitely much. appreciate that. But <laughs> I don't have the level of nostalgia or knowledge of the history that you do. And I'm not sure that a little of it wouldn't be lost on me and that I wouldn't be walking through Disneyland and saying, well, this is kind of the same thing to me. I'm not sure. I can sure. see that. I can absolutely see that. But I, I tell you, I think um, I, I think that that might actually work to your advantage because then that way you could go for, say, a day, you know, get, give each park a day. I think going less than a day to either of the park is kind of doing both yourself and the park a disservice. But with that in mind, that you wouldn't be hung up on, I've got to go stand over here because there's that picture of Walt standing over here, you know, that sort of thing. Just going to enjoy it on more of a surface level, if you know what I mean, like going to ride the rides that aren't out at Walt Disney World. That could work to your advantage because there's actually – I mean, there's a ton of stuff to do at Disneyland that you can't find at Walt Disney World. So I, I think a lot of people seem to – and I, I remember actually being sort of taught this when I went through – there's there's an introductory class that all cast members go through called Traditions at Walt Disney World. And I can remember my traditions kind of teaching us that basically – um, the Magic Kingdom is basically like a better version of Disneyland, like the cooler version, you know? And mm -hmm. that's not really true because there's a ton of stuff in Disneyland that doesn't exist anywhere else, or at least here in the U.S. So you've got, you know, right off the bat, Indiana Jones. I mean, that ride is awesome, and you would love it. Um, you know, the Matterhorn, I mean, I could, you know, there's a long list. And then the other park, uh, California Adventure, while it is very Hollywood Studios-like, it's also its own unique beast. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that doesn't exist anywhere else in the U.S. either, uh, you know, on, on the East Coast. So, I mean, I think you would get enough out of it that it would definitely be worth your, your time to go and check it out, even, even if it was just for a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree. I'm just... I, I know my level of appreciation wouldn't reach yours. That, oh, that's, no. <laughs> that's a given, an absolute given. I, I, I could give you enough prep, you know, enough uh, primer stuff, you know, that, that I think you, you, I could get you excited about it and, you know, to where you'd want to go and you'd really have a good time and enjoy it without necessarily, you know, a, a huge investment of time or anything like that. Because 
one of the funnest things, you know, for, for any Disney fan that can go, you know, that ever gets the opportunity to do both of them is just the simple compare and contrast of, of attractions. Mm-hmm. Because even the attractions that they have in both places, I didn't find where where there was a single attraction that was exactly duplicated. They all have little differences. So it's fun to figure out, like, which is your favorite version of this attraction, you know? And it, it's fun because there's not really a correct answer to that, and there's not really a rule because it, it seemed at first um, – to me that whichever place had the attraction first that set tended to be the better version but that's not a hard and fast rule because there was exceptions to that rule too so you know that's part of the fun of it too even if you know you, you look at something and go well you know i could ride that in florida well you know if you had the time go ahead and try it anyway because you might find wow this is a you know a really different version or a better version you know, that's so here's what i'm thinking now i think if we go we're going to have to FaceTime with you for the entire time that we go through the park. Uh, I would I would totally be down for that. I would so be down for that. That would be fun. That would be fun. Hey, well, I, uh, you, you be sure to tell you, Tina that uh, I really appreciate that compliment because that, you know, if, if, I, if I still have any unfulfilled, you know, dreams, you know, professionally at Disney, that that's the one is I, I would love to be a tour guide at some point. Um, I, I've tried so hard to get into that pool and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of those clubs I can't seem to, to break into type of thing. You know, I've had the opportunity before to do what they call VIP tours, but I'm just, I'm just not interested in that. Plus I don't think I'm built for it either. It's, you know, that the VIP ones are where you are with like a family paying for that service for the, you know, for like a day or there's like a limited uh, a minimum number of hours they have to book you for, but it's not like a tour in the traditional sense of like, I'm going to point things out to you and give you a history lesson or anything. It's more like I'm going to get you front of the line access to all the attractions you want to go to. And I'm not really interested in that. You know, I, I want to do like true tour guide stuff, you know, where you're, you're giving people, fun facts and information and, you know, just all the geeky, you know, stuff that I really am passionate about. You know, that's what I'd really like to do, but I don't know. We'll see if it ever happens or not, but I get to do a little bit of that in my current role. So, you know, I get to kind of scratch that itch that way, but I'd, I'd really like to do it, you know, inside the parks and mm-hmm. you know, thing, but we'll see. But I, I get to kind of play with that, you know, when I go with friends and, and family that, you know, are interested or I get to just torture my wife with it when we go. <laughs> well, does she appreciate your your level of knowledge? Yeah, yeah, I think it's about it's a fifty fifty. <laughs> I think there's a lot of times when I annoy her. There's a, I, I have heard on a number of occasions. Yes, I know you've told me you know that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, you know we'll, we'll watch tv shows and then i start saying well you see this actor you know what else he was in and i start going off on like a little bit of a rant and you can see she's she's like just pause it and then tell me (laughs) yep yeah i know i do i do the same thing i'm i'm bad about doing it when we're in the parks and all but you know to me it's it's fun it's interesting not for nothing but it's their fault all the connections you know it's their fault they married us (laughs) the hell were they thinking (laughs) 
Well, we got we still got time to talk some funny books, you think? Sure, we got a little time to go here. Uh, so I guess I'm going first because I have the older Marvel book. Yeah. And uh, your book, quite frankly, I don't know if we should do your book because it's such a big book. And by big, I mean well thought of, well, you know, famous, whatever you want to call it, that I don't know if we should be maybe dedicating an entire episode to it. That's not a bad idea. Um, or at least to I, that story arc, if not that one issue. I don't know. I, I, I'm, hmm. I don't know. I'm kind of torn on that because you're right. It is extremely highly regarded and all that. And it's, it's kind of considered a neoclassic and, uh, and all that sort of thing. But in in rereading it for the first time, probably since it was new, while I still enjoy it and I still think it is a, a really good story and, and it's epic in scope and all that, I, I, you know, it it's not quite what I remember it to be also. So I, I don't know. But it might be interesting to, to do it as an episode, like you say, you know, the, the whole story from a, an angle of examining that at that because didn't we we created a thing i can't remember what we called it or, or maybe it was just an idea you and i talked about of looking at class you know we did i know we did yeah, a second look or two. Second look that was it yes yeah because yeah, we did that, we did it with the uh uh what you call it? i can't even think what the name is the story with uh norman osborne knocking up gwen stacy right 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 I, th- I think we had one, at least one other. Yeah, we need to do more of those. Because so I, I, I think it's a good idea because this this might be the opposite, quite frankly. Uh, this might be one that everybody regards as a classic, and when we start to you know disassemble it a little bit, it might be like, well, it's not quite as classic as you think. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, the artwork. I love the artwork in this, but. You know what? Let's do let's do my book, and then we'll decide. And if if we're not okay. going to do it, we will let the audience know what we were talking about. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> okay. So I picked Spider-Man 35, and as Scott is aware, uh, I also posted my mail call on today's <laughs> on Facebook today, which includes Spider-Man number 35, which is why I picked it. Um, you know, every once in a while, a book gets picked just because it catches your fancy on a given day and you say well we're doing a show let's do that book so it's it's the first time in i'm gonna say five years that i've gotten a spider-man issue to fill a a, a slot in my want list below issue 50 you know those those issues don't come around too often for me Uh, how'd you do on this one what's that how'd you do on this uh i paid 25 dollars for it Damn, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. And and uh, let's let's talk about that for a couple of minutes, just because it, it goes into my comic collecting. That whole list that I posted of my mail call. Uh, what I did was I went on. I found this particular bo- seller, uh, and I found a book that I was interested in, and and all of his books were listed as a price or best offer. And I made him an offer on a book. I don't even remember which one of them it was. I made him an offer on a book, and he accepted it. And then I I went through, I paid for it. And then I continued to look at his books that he had, and I saw there were other ones available that interested me. And I emailed the guy, and I said, if I buy more books, you know, can you combine them on the shipping? And he was more than happy to do that. 
so now, you know, in eBay purchases, that makes a big difference. If you're looking at individual books now and you're not paying shipping on them, now, now you could start looking at the price legitimately and not saying, well, right. you know, how does that figure to reality? Uh, so I started making him offers on a bunch of books and some of them, there were a couple, it was like, you know, he was asking $2 for the book and I offered him $2 just so that he could accept it without the shipping. You know, it, it occurred to me that you, I remember seeing your post and seeing that there was a number on the side, you know, where, where not all the pictures show and it says like plus whatever. So I just hunted the post up and I'm looking through and damn, you got some really good books. I especially like that issue of, uh, Brave and the Bold 108, uh, Batman and Sergeant Rock. I, I acquired that one myself um, and with, sometime within the past couple of years as I've been filling in those holes. And uh, uh, that one's a wacky one. If I, Well, of course, it's a Bob Haney, so they're all wacky. But this <laughs> one's especially wacky, as I, as I seem to recall. But, yeah, great, great cover on that one. But, yeah, you got some really cool books here. Yeah, well, like I said, you know, once I knew that he was receptive to the best offer – and that I wasn't going to pay shipping on them. I went through his entire list and I found a bunch of books that I was interested in. And there were offers I made that he declined. Uh, not too many, though. He was very reasonable. And, and I tried to be reasonable in kind. Like I said, when he was asking $2 for a book that I wanted, I just offered him $2 for it. I didn't say, well, I'm going to offer you $1.50 for this. You know, I, I thought that would just be kind of uh, just not, not the nice way to handle it, you know? Uh, right. So... You know, I, I ended up, you know, with pretty happy with with what I got, and I'm going to give it a couple of days, and I'm going to go back and look over his list again and see I might do the same thing again. But you know, I, I ended up with a couple of books to take off my want list that, you know, I, I didn't really foresee myself having, you know, anytime soon for cheap or for reasonable. You know, it, it, I don't know if it was cheap, but it was, you know, the prices were reasonable. Uh, you know, especially, you know, I, I got a Silver Surfer number nine from him. Uh, I'm finding that first volume of Silver Surfer, that those issues are just so hard to come by at a decent price. So when I see when I see those, I jump all over them. And I got a, I, 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 I have for the second time in just a period of months uh, lowered the number on my earliest issue of World's Finest. Because recently I bought issue 167, I think it was, which we covered, or I covered it with Derek Crabb. Uh, Derek Crabb? Or was it uh, was it Ryan Daly? I don't know. I covered with one of those dudes. Uh, <laughs> and it was my earliest issue, and now I have this one, which is earlier than that. Is that a collection that you're looking to fill in? Not really. Not really. Um, I don't have it on my want list. But when I see an issue at a reasonable price, <laughs> and it's an older one, I pick it up. That's funny because I'm I'm exactly the same way. It's it's definitely not on my radar, um, but I'm I'm exactly the same way. If I find it cheap enough, I'm like, yeah, I'll grab that. Brave and the Bold is the same for me. It's not on my want list, but when I see one that's reasonable, uh, you know, then I'm then I'll grab it. Uh, I would make the argument for for Brave and the Bold that it should be at, at least i would say the the um neil adams and jim opero illustrated issues and i say that as somebody that fingers crossed I, i'm still waiting for the book to arrive in the mail but if it arrives and it's in decent shape um i i will have finally completed that task which I, I tell you right now 14 year old me would have thought that was pretty friggin cool you know 
because uh, you know, that's something I sixty year old me thinks it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I would say you know you know just in, in that aspect because I think those issues are are definitely worth um, reading and owning. But World's Finest is a eh, it's such a mixed bag and. You know, it's funny. I was looking not long ago at uh, a list, uh, you know, one of those, uh, I don't want to say clickbait articles, but kind of like a clickbait article. It was like the best world's finest stories of all time. And just reading through them, it's like none of them sounded like they were very good, you know. It's just it's funny to think that those two teamed up for what was it? It was well over 200 issues. And there's really not a lot of them that are you know, that stand out, you know, it was, well, my, just, my, it was uh, just kind of a title, you know, my world's finest issues that I, you know, that I sought out were the super sons issues. Cause I got such a kick out of them when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, that I, I didn't, I, you know, you and I collect differently as far as the things we seek sometimes, because you will zero in on an artist or a writer. Right. Uh, I've never really done that for the most part, at least. I mean, there are exceptions. Uh, but, you know, the problem is, like, for me, if I said, oh, I'm going to go for all the brave and the bold with Jim Aparo and, and Neil Adams, then the collector in me would say, well, no, I need all the brave and the bolds. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I don't necessarily want to fall down that hole. But, again, if I see one that's reasonably priced and, you know, it, it looks decent to me, I'll, I'll pick it up. So that it, it's, it's the only difference is they're not showing up on my want list. Right, right. But, you know, it's every other book. Well, all these other, uh, I think I got 11 books here. And with the exception of those two, The World's Finest and The Brave and the Bold, uh, every other book in, in this pile crossed off a number on my want list. That's awesome. You know, I you know that I'm not much for Daredevil, but damn, I love this cover. Uh, it's ninety. What is it? Eighty eighty two. Number eighty two. Now, part of it is because I love the Scorpion. I, I always have since I was a kid. But this is a great Gil Kane cover. I've never seen before. That's really nice. And you know what? What it is? And just just for the readers, the listeners rather, it shows the Scorpion kind of facing. Uh, I guess toward like he would almost be looking towards the reader's right shoulder. Uh, and he's lashing out with his tail and catching Daredevil on the chin, under the chin with it and sending him reeling back. But Daredevil is now going back to the right. Uh, right. And so, you know, there's that, that kind of traditional Gil Kane shot where, where you see the person getting hit and coming towards you. And this right. is like a variation on that, which I like. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. So, you know, at this point... I'm not 100% sure that I shouldn't be blaming you for, like, rekindling, re-re-rekindling this desire I have to get old books. Why Why would you blame me? Well, first of all, because it's I easy do? to do. <laughs> it's always easy to blame somebody else for yeah, our own things. Everybody else does, yeah. <laughs> uh, second of all, because you've, you've been a crazy comic-buying person for the last year or so, oh, and, 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 and then it makes me jealous. It's ridiculous because this whole comics buying spree started as, uh, you know, a, a serious call you know, of my collection. You know, Same with me. Point, you know, to a point where, 
you know, not only was I intent to basically sell the bulk of my collection, but, you know, I was actually giving books away and everything to try to, you know, I, I, I briefly embraced, and I don't know who the, the thing is, but you know that, that thing about, uh, you know, decluttering your life and the whole, I don't know if it's feng shui or whatever the hell you call it, but it's, it's this thing that went around. I, I think some people are still doing it, and it's, it's a very kind of like new agey millennial thing, I, I think, to kind of detach yourself from the material, you know, that sort of thing. And I kind of briefly, I was like, you know, because that, that's true. To a certain extent, large collections come with a lot of stress, you know. And for guys like us, I think a lot of that stress comes from something we've talked a lot about, which is what the hell happens to all this shit when I'm gone, you know. Yeah. And oh, that's, so that's definitely a, a part of it. But yeah. but but my my attitude towards that has become more selfish now. It's like, well, if I'm going to get rid of the things that I love doing because one day I'm going to be gone, then all I'm doing is planning for my death. Yes. And, and I'm not living my life that way. Sorry. Exactly. Sorry, kids, but you're going to have to deal with disposing of these in some way shape or form and you know what if ultimately you don't get the value on them that i would hope you would uh, well i'll be dead anyway that that's kind of what happened to me with with this thing was you know i i started the project you know i i, I did a big old calling thing and then i started selling stuff and was doing very well and making decent money and everything but then as the money started to accumulate i was like what do I do with it? You know, it's like if I'm not buying comics, what what am I? You know, I mean, this is this is what I do. You know, this is me. I'm I'm a comic book collector. I enjoy it. You know, this is where I get my enjoyment and and my relaxation and you know all that. It, it's such a ingrained part of me. It's like, yeah, it did. The whole thing didn't last very long. I mean, I'm still working on selling stuff, but it, I'm, at this point, you know, the the culling project and the stuff I'm getting rid of, it's stuff I can stand to get rid of. But, you know, in the in the very beginning of that project, I sold a lot of stuff that, frankly, I try not to think about it too much now because I don't want to say I regret it, but yeah, I kind of regret it. You know, I mean, I sold, um, you know, the the vast bulk of my Amazing Spider-Man collection. And, I mean, I kept the stuff that was most sentimental to me and all that because I kind of did that thing where they talk about, you know, hold it in your hand and if it means anything to you, know, that sort of shit, you know? What the hell are you listening to these people for? Uh, yeah, I, I, I know exactly, right? But, I mean, there were things that I got rid of in, in that collection that now I'm, I regret it because I'll probably never own them again, you know, unless, you know, some, you know, just miraculously drop in my lap for pennies or something like that. So yeah, I had you know now I'm I'm much more careful, but I mean, it, you know it turned into, okay, you know getting rid of this stuff, making space, you know earning money, and then turning right around and taking that money and going yeah screw this, and then starting to fill in holes type of thing. So yeah, and I've bought more comics here recently than I than I have in years. So the whole declutter thing didn't really pan out because I think I've got many more comics now than I've had in in many a year but i'm i'm enjoying it i'm having a blast doing it you know i've gotten some really good scores lately so see my decluttering 
started from the perspective of, okay, I know that I'm going to be selling my house soon and moving somewhere new, and I don't know where I'm putting my comics, and I don't really need the comics that I don't really want. So basically, and, and we've talked about this before, so again, I'll try and do the Reader's Digest version. Uh, you know, I eliminated most of my books that go from 1990 on. I did keep some, uh, certain series that I've enjoyed and certain books that I've enjoyed that I kept. But for the most part, I focused my collection between the 60s and 1990, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um so what it ended up doing, and, and if you if you remember, I, I talked about, like, for each long, long-running series that I really enjoy, I picked an endpoint. Like, Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, go, I'm, I'm collecting up to issue 300, nothing beyond that. Uh, Fantastic Four, I think, is the same thing. I think I called 300 as the spot I'm stopping. I think Thor, I did 350. Uh, Daredevil, I did issue 200. You know, so so what it did was it allowed me to focus my want list, frankly, uh, and a lot of the things on there are still unattainable. You know, I, I have listed on my want list Fantastic Four number one. Yeah, well, duh. Uh, you know, what, what what are the chances I'm ever owning that? You know, Spider Man number one. What are the chances I'm ever owning that? And and do I really need it to have it to have it on the want list to know that I want it if I see it at a good price? Right. You know, right. it's, it's kind of dumb when you think about it, but. I have my want list. And again, it's focused. I know exactly which issues I'm looking for and which series I'm looking to fill out. And there are still some like Brave and the Bold or or World's Finest where, you know, I'll pick up a stray issue here and there. But for the most part, I I have a more focused goal when I'm looking in comic stores and when I'm looking on eBay or wherever. Uh, One of the problems with being that focused is it really gives me zero tolerance for places where they'll have like a 50 cent bin and they're just in, you know, no order whatsoever. Oh my God, because I'll see an issue of a series that I know is on the want list. Then I'll look to the want list to see if it's on there and it's not. So then I keep going and then I see a different series. So I got to find the spot on the want list that that's on there. And it just frustrates me to no end because it takes forever to go through a box like that. Mm-hmm. When they yep. have when they have the boxes in order and and then when those individual series are actually in number order, it's like it's like heaven. I love it. I love it. I, I, I you know I'll settle for them just being in some sort of rough alphabetical order or some just some order at all. But yeah, when it's just a you know massive mess, you know, in in any which way whatsoever. Yeah, more and more often lately I've been kind of bypassing those because I just, you know, I just don't have the time and patience for it anymore. But then then, you know, like uh you know, I was in a store a couple of weeks ago. I'm just looking for example Alpha Flight. I need 1 2 3 4 5 6 issues to complete that series. Uh and I'm looking through the Alpha Flight ones. They have all the Alpha Flights together. But they're in no set order. So then every time I'm like, I, I can't, I couldn't memorize the six numbers I'm looking for, <laughs> and and then just flip through there, and I, you know, and I don't remember what the covers look like. So I'm constantly looking back to the want list, back to the book, to the bin, and it does get tiresome. That's if they're in number order, it's easy. I like easy. Easy is good. <laughs> so. We are going to cover at least one book today, so we'll get back to my issue of Amazing Spider-Man number 35. Uh, And I was all set, I have the Marvel Wiki open, but I'm just going to do this one off the top of my head, because 
Sure. That's what you're getting today. <laughs> so so the cover shows Spider-Man heading. It's it's almost as if he just jumped over the head of the reader towards Molten Man, who's in the uh, the spider flashlight thingy. Signal. Uh, spider signal, uh, which for some reason is in black and white and not in color, and I don't really know why. Uh, and the Molten Man is uh, kind of coming towards him, so they're ready to clash. And then it has the title of the story, which I still to this point do not understand. Uh, the Molten Man Regrets, dot, dot, dot. It's almost like he's responding to an invitation, that he regrets that he's not going to be able to come to <laughs> Spider-Man's wedding. You know, I, I don't understand how this title relates to the book. Anyways, uh, the, the story is written, or script and editing by Stan Lee, plot and artwork by Steve Ditko, lettering and loitering by Artie Simic. And... <laughs> It is actually. I will look to a sec for a second to the Marvel Wiki because I want to get the dates on it. It was. It actually came out on January 11th, 1966. So I would have been three years old. Uh, and the cover date on it is April of 76. And the spl it has a, a splash page which shows uh, Spider-Man wrestling with Molten Man. He's got two of his wrists tied off and he's grabbing one of his legs and flipping over while he does it. Uh, but that's not where the story begins. So we go back to Molten Man in jail and then uh, coming before a judge. And I find this interesting. Uh, <laughs> the As he's being brought from the cell to the judge, the uh, guard says, okay, Raxton, look alive. His Honor wants to see you. Now His Honor, H-I-Z-Z-O-N-E-R, is just kind of a slang way to say his <laughs> honor, which meaning the judge. Uh, in the Marvel Wiki page, they say he went before Judge His Honor, <laughs> <laughs> which is really what ultimately made me decide to just do this one off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> so the the judge says uh, that you know since he was uh, went through an unforeseen accident and he offered to pay for the damages he's giving him a suspended sentence and then that makes me think of the godfather when the guy comes before him is a suspended the sentence anyway uh so he's released and he's free and says he's not going to come back and he goes to his apartment where he just happens to have some steel beams laying around for him to crumble and uh also has uh, apparently brick columns that he can crush uh, as well to, to work out. He goes to a jewelry store and this is one of the things that always just makes me go, huh? Is, you know, he puts on a mask and everybody just believes it's his real face. You know? <laughs> they just make such realistic masks. Anyway, he goes to the jewelry store and he acts like he's a rich dude uh, and, and tells the jewelry store owner, okay, I want to, you know, see what, what jewels, you know, the really expensive stuff. So the guy opens up the safe to show him, but then Molten Man shoves him aside and the store owner says, you know, I was ready for this. And he pulls out a gun, but he shoots him, which does nothing. and thinks he has a bulletproof vest until Molten Man reaches over, grabs the gun and just crushes it with his bare hand. Uh, Spider-Man sees the uh, ruckus going on and comes into the store uh, Molten Man, in his still in his uh, costume to look like a regular guy, says, oh, I'm no match for you, I give up. And then as soon as Spider-Man lets his guard down, apparently his spider sense does not work, uh, and Molten Man 
give clocks him one right in the face uh, and then just beats him down enough so that he can run away before the police come but he doesn't get the jewels he gets back to his apartment and he's regretting the fact that he didn't get any get anything and he says he's gonna go back and if spider-man shows up I'll finish him off for good we cut to Peter Parker who's uh, he has like a Batman 1966 movie kind of logic his punch felt like iron could it have been the molten man and uh, right. so, so he somehow he figures out it's him from that so he goes to uh, to Raxton's apartment which apparently was just held in abeyance while he was in jail I guess he wasn't in jail too long because uh, his prior issue was issue 28 so that's only seven months ago in real time uh, <laughs> so he was probably you know I guess he was waiting for his hearing and got released right away it was probably you know just a couple of days in reality so he sees him there in the same suit that he was in when he robbed the place but says oh I can't be sure it was him so I'll put a spider tracer on his on his lapel and he follows him around and then Molten Man redisguises himself and goes into the jewelry store. And I'm not sure why he would redisguise himself, considering he's just breaking in at night anyway. Uh, but he he breaks into the jewelry store and then, in another uh, just kind of strange explanation, being me metallic itself, my skin is sensitive to the sound of other metal within the lock tumblers, so that he's able to break into their uh, safe. Spider-Man confronts him, sprays him with webbing, but before it has a chance to harden, he rips off the webs and his disguise. And then we have a pretty cool Steve Ditko sequence of the two of them just trading punches back and forth uh, that feels like it's re really well choreographed to me. Uh, we have, was it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten panels, which end with him grabbing Spider-Man from behind in a bear hug. Uh, but Spider-Man kind of flips him over to make him let go. Uh, and then Molten Man just starts like throwing crap at him and starts running away. But Spider-Man is waiting for him at his apartment where they start tussling again. Uh, and then he just grabs some ropes. And as he punches once, he lassoes that wrist. And then he tries to punch again and he lassoes the other wrist and he flips him over and then hog ties his legs and webs him and leaves him outside along with proof of the robbery attempts that he had from the photographs he took uh, he then goes to the daily bugle to sell the photos and finds out that betty brandt has now <laughs> left the uh daily planet or that daily planet the daily bugle <laughs> uh and the her replacement hands him uh his photo to betty forever peter and he takes it and tosses it in the garbage and walks off with that sad Parker luck. You could hear the Hulk theme playing, the Lonely Man <laughs> theme as he's walking away. Uh, and then, then we have next dish, a swinging supervillain so different, so new, we can't even tell you his name yet. And that's because Stan hadn't written the story. <laughs> All he got was the artwork of this guy, apparently, and then the had to wait man? to write later. Huh? Is that his name, Meteor Man, or something like He, he went like by that? the Meteor Man, and he went by the Looter. Ah, uh, right, right. At different times, who, he was. Who is this woman that took over for Betty? Is she just a like a one-time thing, or do I'm we pretty see sure she's a one-time thing. Actually, let me check that wiki page if I still have it open, which I do. Yeah, I, I uh, didn't recognize her. I didn't know who she was supposed to be. 
If if it, she's anybody, I don't know. It doesn't actually even mention. Oh, it says J. Jonah Jameson's new secretary, unnamed final appearance. Ah, uh, okay. And then, uh, oh, at one point, just to to mention also, there's a point in the story where uh, Spider-Man's fighting uh, the Molten Man, and in the course of fighting him, he mentions Irving Forbush, uh, (laughs) which which I just got a kick out of. Where is that? I know that. Yeah. Yeah, he says, uh, says, yeah, once once I've beaten you, there'll be nobody left to stop me. Don't kid yourself. There's always Irving Forbush. And he says, who's he? Forget it. It's an in-joke. I love it. So I love it. That's that's Stanley at his Stanleyist. But uh, yeah, I mean this this is you know Silver Age Marvel. Uh, it it almost feels like an episode of the 1968 cartoon. Yes, I could actually hear that music in my head while I was reading this. Yes, so you know, this is you know, Spider-Man is my favorite character. I know you know you're Superman. I'm Spider-Man. I love this stuff. I really do. I I and I get thrilled honestly whenever I can fill a spot in my. In my spy off my Spider-Man want list, uh, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten issues uh, between 260 and 300, which include 300. Unfortunately, I'll probably never re- never acquire that one, uh, and those, frankly, won't thrill me that much. But I have, I don't know, probably probably about 25 to 30 issues between 1 and 50 that I still need and every time I acquire one of those it'll it will give me a thrill which this <laughs> one does so I don't know that I can honestly rate this one because I just love this stuff so much what did you, had you read this before I had, but I'm shocked by how little I really remembered of it um, to a point that it, it was almost like reading it brand new. But I, I know that I have because I'm well past this point in my Marvel read-through. Um, so I, I know that I have. And at one point I had read like the first, I don't know, decade or so of Spider-Man. Um, when I first got interested in the character and everything. So, yeah, I know that I have it. I just, geez, I, I didn't remember anything that happened in this issue. Um, I think it's fantastic. I really do. But I also, at, at the same time, um, there's a there's a, a part of me that feels like maybe this was at just a bit of a, of a lull. Um because I know that you know big things start happening past this point with the Green Goblin and all that, and we had had some you know developments prior to this. So I, I don't know. It, it almost well, I think this is in the phase. I think to 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 kind of touch on that, uh, we're very very shortly going to lose Steve Ditko as an artist on this book right. and have John Romita Senior take over. Uh, I believe that's with issue thirty nine. Um, at this point, Stan and Steve clearly were not on the same page. Uh, I think Steve would Steve Ditko would just send it over, Stan would add his dialogue in, and that was it. I don't think they really had much to do with each other. Uh, you know, maybe Stan gave him you know the the crumb of an idea before he drew the pages, but I don't think 
I don't think there was really a lot more interaction than that. So yeah, the, it did kind of have a lull towards the end of Ditko's run because I think there was a disconnect between the writing and the art. Right. Uh, so you know, I and and you know, it's it's apparently you know whether it's apocryphal or reality, it's you know famous that that Ditko didn't want Norman Osborn to be the Green Goblin and Stan did, and you know it was you know that was a big deal apparently between them. So. I think it's interesting that right out of the gate, as soon as the story opens, you know, Stan says, you know, that this issue is going to be a change of pace. Um, you know, it's going to be an action packed. And so maybe it's maybe it's because of that. I was paying a little more attention to the story. And so it does seem to me to be a little light on story. It feels very much like an action issue, like it's focusing more on the action. And because of that, it just felt a little lighter on the story, if you know what I meant. No, you know oh, I absolutely. Mean? But that said, I mean, you know, being sometimes an, an art first guy with comics, I, I like it in that aspect because I just look at this and, and once again, I'm wowed by the fact that while I can't think of a single thing I've ever really liked of Ditko beyond Spider-Man, I love his Spider-Man. And it's just so weird to me that I really, really love this stuff, but just don't think it much of anything else he ever did beyond it. You know, that's just so odd to me. But I look at this and um, I'm really struck by a number of the different poses and panels and everything that um, I never really realized just how closely um, Ron Friends was, um, I don't want to say copying, but kind of uh, definitely aping Ditko's style during his run on the book. And it's one of the reasons I really liked Ron Friends uh, as, you know, the Spider-Man artist. And one of the reasons I, I really, you know, that's kind of like my Spider-Man because I was buying that stuff right off the stands. But like there's a shot here top of the page page 15 where molten man comes in and spider-man's hanging on the wall in the dark that i've seen um adapted by friends when he would do the retelling of spider-man's origin from amazing fantasy 15 there's a shot just like that in one of the retellings where the guy who's standing there with the shocked expression on his face is the burglar and Spider-Man's hanging on the wall looking exactly like that as he confronts him saying something about, you know, my Uncle Ben and all that. So I, I think that's really cool that, you know, he was obviously looking back at this stuff and and imitating that style and imitating that, that art style. And I think that's just really cool. You know, imitating Agreed. it without just outright ripping it off or, or, you know, copying or anything like that, but just making it of the same flavor and and i really i respect that i enjoy that a lot so this felt you know of course yes this is the original stuff but it just felt very familiar to me because i wouldn't really get into the original stuff until way later i was just discovering him as he was on the stands as i was a kid you know right you know uh i recently posted a few weeks ago actually the uh a picture from uh from what you call a picture that I had found on on Facebook, I think, uh, of uh, 
a picture that Jack Kirby kind of like ripped off to turn into Sue Storm. Right, right, yeah. And somebody quoted an artist in that, and I'm just trying to look at the quote so I can get it right because I got a kick out of, uh, and and I don't necessarily disagree totally, <laughs> but I disagree to a small extent. If I can find where I posted that, I post some, I post too much. I remember when you posted that because I'm just thinking, how many old porno mags did he have to pour through to find that pose? Yeah, really. Uh, here it is. Alan Hunt commented, Larry Hama said that Wally Wood had a sign up in his studio that said, never draw anything you can copy. Never copy anything you can trace. Never trace anything that you can cut out and paste up. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I get a kick out of that. I mean, I we we've talked about like people photoboxing and taking it too far i don't think kirby did that with his image but i don't really have a problem that he used the pose that he that he took the pose from the picture and used it and i have no problem with ron friends taking a ditko image and then kind of adapting it to his his own purposes a to absolutely. me that's being that's an homage and it's there's nothing wrong with it, it it's it's fine. It's when they somebody, actually trace yeah. the pictures that I have a problem. Right, right. And there was, somebody was dogging uh, Rich Buckler not long ago in, I want to say it was a, the Neil Adams Appreciation Group on Facebook, but it was somewhere on Facebook. I, I saw it. And somebody was really dogging on Buckler. Now, you know, I think the world of Rich Buckler, but I also thought the world of, of Neil Adams as an artist, too. And I just didn't want to get involved in it, so I don't think I commented at all. But it always annoys me because that's one of the reasons I liked Buckler was that I never looked at him as ripping off other artists. I look at it as he was trying to lend a uniformity to the character by taking some of the more iconic shots and, and poses and integrating them into his work. And I, I like that sort of thing. I mean, as long as it's not obviously completely ripped off i like it i i i think that's kind of cool because it it makes it uniform i mean we all as human beings have our little idiosyncratic things you know the the you know things that we do out of habit or things that we say you know all the time you know that sort of thing so what is wrong with the characters having you know a, a certain stock way that they fight or a stock way that they pose or something you know i i don't see a problem with that and i and i like you know especially when it's the top artist you know if, if you're you know what's the saying you know, if you're going to imitate or if you're going to rip off somebody rip off the best type of thing and I, I like that but i don't see it as ripping off i see it as like you said paying homage but also keeping the uniform look of the best iteration of that character and i think in a lot of ways uh, Ditko's not only the first in a lot of ways I think he was the, the defining look of Spider-Man so I'm perfectly alright with somebody like Friends you know, utilizing that style uh, and keeping it consistent same way I am with you know somebody like Buckler using um, Neil Adams and uh, Jose Garcia Lopez for Superman because I think those are like the definitive looks of that character or the best looks of that character so, yeah, I, I don't get the whole thing. Of, oh, they're just ripping them off. Well, you know, if you want to get technical on that aspect, I mean, the whole homaging and, you know, quote unquote, ripping off has been happening ever since the, the strips way back when, you know, so. When, when homaging is done right, 
it should make you smile. <laughs> right. You know, like what you know, we I mean, we're going far afield here. First, I'm going to just hit on the Rich Buckler thing. Uh, I believe, uh, if if my information is correct, that when he took over the Fantastic Four, which is where most of the homages uh, are found that you see people posting on on Facebook and whatever, uh, I believe he was charged with making it as Kirby-like as possible. Right. So the fact that he was doing homages to Kirby in there, well, duh. <laughs> and, and and let's even keep that. When Kirby left the book around issue, uh, he kind of left around 100 or so, and then he came. They had one issue that was kind of a stock one that they used in 108. But you know, John Buscema took over, and then there was you know a couple of other issues. But then you know, eventually Buckler took over, and I think they were all charged with make this as Kirby-like as you can. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why Joe Sinnott was kept on as the anchor for so long, because he kept it kept a consistent style in the book. They, You know, the book was so popular. I mean, that was their flagship title at the time. Uh, right. You know, they didn't want any change in it. They wanted it to be as consistent as possible. So I think that kind of explains that away. And then I'm going to kind of take this even further afield. Uh, I think those of us, and I know you are one of them, who love the uh, the version the the movie version of Popeye, love it large in in at least in part because it is so reminiscent of what we saw in the old cartoons and the old comic strips. Right. And and you know that's that's what makes it fun. That's what makes you smile about it. Uh, and and people who don't maybe people who don't have a, a nostalgia for those things don't appreciate it the way we do. Uh, so, you know, maybe it's different for them, but, you know, and then they look at it as just a ripoff because they're not really familiar with the other stuff anyway. So they don't want it to be homaged. Uh, I, I don't really get it sometimes. There, there is definitely a point, and I think you can set it yourself. I think it's, it's in, individual, uh, but there's a point when you go from homage to stealing. And right. I don't think we're looking at people who are stealing for the most part. No, right. You know, when they're that. tracing, that's when they're stealing, as far as I'm concerned. Right, right. But if they say, oh, this was a pretty cool pose, I'm going to use it, God bless you. Go ahead. <laughs> I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. So, I, I think the art here, you know, the, the story is light, uh, as you said, and I think that is why it feels to me like an episode of the cartoon, as opposed to you know, an, a, a, an episode of, or an issue of the comic more so, uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot of character development that goes on. There's not a lot of interaction. The only character development is, you know, Peter being sad at the end because Betty left. That's really the only character development in the entire book. The only character moments. Uh, otherwise it's, you know, it's a simple chase and fight issue. Uh, and I find it amusing. And, you know, I think Stan had to work with what what Ditko gave him, but I, you know, as I commented, I find it amusing that, you know, he goes to his apartment, he just happens to have steel bars laying around to to bend up, and and a and a brick wall that he's allowed to just kind of break apart. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it, it's kind of dopey when you think about it. Uh, and then yeah, where you the know, hell is he living? Is he, <laughs> exactly, he's living in a foundry or something. <laughs> so the you know the. the, the he had to work with what he got. And then, you know, I, I even think it's it's clever. You know, like you get the thing where he's being released from prison and I guess he's got to come up with, well, how are they doing that? Uh, and, he, you know, he says, well, you know, you, you've paid, offered to pay for the restitution and I'm going to give you a suspended sentence because you didn't, 
you know, it was an unforeseen accident that turned you into what you are. Uh, you know, I, I think that's all good. <laughs> you know, I think he I think he worked as well as he could with what he was given here. Uh, and I, I love the artwork in it. I love the, chore the choreography uh, of the fight, the, the punches going back and forth and everything. The, you know, Spider-Man flipping over and, and you know, I, I don't know that these ropes that he's using would be sufficient to hold him is the problem. He's able to... to Right. bend steel in his bare hands uh, and and uh you know break through a brick wall i don't know if he can change the course of mighty rivers but he's pretty freaking strong and you tie him up with a rope and he can't get out of it uh, i don't know about that <laughs> now my familiarity with molten man comes from much further down the timeline where he he's developed and and adapted and I, and I want to say he eventually had more powers like heat powers and stuff like that and am I right well in in issue I think it's 132 uh and I don't know if he appears between now and issue 132 that may be his next appearance at that point the condition that's affecting him uh is actually causing his body to burn up so he literally becomes a molten man uh, so and that, that story ends with him falling, I think, into the East River, and, you know, they assume he's dead. Uh, and then he comes back, and it turns out he's Liz Allen's stepbrother, uh, and he kind of reforms himself. And then that's where I lost track. I don't know if he stays reformed or if he, you know, falls back into crime at all. See, that's what confused me here is that I like this character. I think he's cool, but I, I was thinking more of, like, later versions of him at this time, I'm a little mystified as why he has the name the Molten Man when he's not molten. <laughs> yeah, I, I cannot like, answer that one. <laughs> you know, it's like like he basically is covered in a in like a gold sheath. You know, so I, I was a little bit mystified. Like he's not drippy. He's not he doesn't like you know he's not gooey or anything. He doesn't have any heat to him. You know, so like when Spider Man grabs him or whatever, he's not getting burned or anything. So I'm like. Okay, where's the molten part come into this? I didn't. There's there's a disconnect there. So it's almost like he's he's poorly named or whatever. But I like that a later on, you know, later down the line, he does kind of adapt more of the the molten aspect with you know the heat generation and and I I want to say there's at least one story I, I remember reading where he is kind of like drippy and and like he like his like he's coming apart or something. Mm -hmm. do, do you remember one like that? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm thinking of a different character, but I, I thought he kind of had that sort of thing, almost almost like Plasmus over at uh, at DC. If you know who that character is, I do. I don't remember him actually like. I don't remember his body like falling apart. Uh, but I'm not sure. Could have been. Like I said, I kind of lost track after he was reformed. I lost track. Right. So I, I don't know. I'm I'm just paging through the uh the the digital copy of issue twenty eight when he first appears to see if it doesn't seem to make sense. You know, he just says after after he, you know has the stuff on him and it absorbs into his skin, he he says something like, uh I've become an actual molten man. I can do anything. I've been given power behind my dreams. Everybody, out of the way. No one can stand up against the Molten Man. So he, he just gave himself the name. I don't know. 
maybe but it's he just, just some sort of metal, liquid metal needs. alloy that gets broken, tossed on him, and uh, and absorbs into his skin. Right. Through his clothing, I might add. So maybe it's just a matter of uh, he doesn't really understand what the word molten means. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Could be. I, I, I'm gonna call myself Lava Face. <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, I I don't get that either. And when you know when I first came into this character, it was in you know what whatever it was issue one thirty two. Uh, when he was literally molten. Uh, and so that was my first exposure to him. And, uh, yeah, I never really understood, you know, when I went back, why they uh, why they did that. I'm just trying to... I'm I just looking at the digital copy of that issue now, and I'm trying to see if they... Uh, if, if there were any appearances in between. That's 132. Yeah, no, it just says, uh, yeah, from Spider Man 28 and 35. So until 132, he doesn't appear again. Hmm. So I've changed, my, fr my friend. My body has evolved. So it was once a merely a coating of metal has become part of my very skin. And that's not the only thing that's changed. And he's. So my body heat has risen, Spider Man, to the present. I estimate it to be well over 300 degrees Fahrenheit. One touch from of my hand will scald you and burn you alive. So. Oh yeah. Okay, I'm looking at the coat. Yeah, I kind of remember this issue. And then in issue 133 sure. is when he falls into the river and bye bye. <laughs> but apparently that just ceased the uh, the burning and put him back in the just coated metal coating state. But I guess he he his powers set still expanded that he had some control over heat at that point. Anyway, back to issue thirty-five. So almost a hundred issues in between his appearances, which is kind of cool. Uh, so again, I, I think I am going to rate this, uh, even though I am, I am giving you the. Oh uh, uh, wait 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 real quick! I just just because I'm looking at it, so. I don't know how representative it is of what's actually going on in the inside the issue, but my first exposure to him would have been spectacular number 63, where on the cover he is kind of he's on fire essentially and and does look he, he does not necessarily drippy, but he looks drippy. He looks like freshly molten metal type of thing. And I think that's why I I was looking at this and going, wait, wait, he doesn't seem the way I remember him. But that would be why, because he, he is very different in that appearance. Yeah, he well, that's, yeah, he's definitely all, uh, infl you know, inflamed and, and hot again at that point. Right. But then that issue ends with him falling into a swimming pool and and he's laying on the ground back he's reverted to his original metal permeated self he stopped burning <laughs> so yeah but uh, you know i guess it makes more sense with the name to have that be his his right lot right, in life yeah. yeah that's what i'm thinking too with, with the name molten i just think when i think molten i think of like molten steel you know like you you see but, the old you know the old films of like 
you know, the, the red hot steel running down the trough and, you know, being formed into, you know, steel bars or whatever. That yeah. That's my thought of molten. So I look at this guy and I'm like, he doesn't look molten. He looks like, like, like golden Captain boy or, or, or what? Would golden boy. Gold. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, he, what he really reminds me of is, do you remember the very first story arc in the Further Adventures of Indiana Jones by John Byrne, where it had the the people had been dipped in gold? I don't remember, but that's exactly what he looks like. Yeah, yeah, and they they were like they were like because India at first thought that they were statues that had been hung on the wall, but then later on it's revealed that they were actually lowered alive into this molten gold pit and killed and then hung up on the wall, like almost like trophies or something. And at the very end of this, a big old spoiler, but at the very end of that story, he uses some sort of mystic chant or something to bring one of them back to life to, to kill the bad guy at the end of the story. And that's kind of what it reminds me of is like the golden golem type of thing from the end of that story. So, yeah, I don't I don't I'm just kind of perplexed by his name. I like that eventually he did become more of of a literal molten man. But at this point, like you said, with his origin issue, the name doesn't make any sense. He's not molten. (laughs) You want to be molten, man, you got to be on fire, dude. Right. Right. That aside, <laughs> I still do get a big kick out of this issue. Uh, the cover, it's, I, I like the cover. And if I were in the newsstand, you know, or the, uh, well, there wouldn't be a comic book store back when this came out. If I were at the newsstand and I saw this, I would definitely be up to pick it up. But I don't see it as like iconic or a, a great, great pick cover. So I'm going to say, you know, solid B. So it's a very good cover. Uh, the interior art, I really like. I think Ditko did a, a great job with this. I, I, I love the choreographing. I love the uh, just just the way he he did. You know, the movement is shown. The the facial expressions, pretty much everything about it. I'm gonna say an A on the interior art. The story is a little too light to give it any serious consideration. I'm gonna say a B minus on the story, uh, just because. You know, it's just a, a punch it out, punch him out story. Nothing, nothing to see here. Move on. Um, so I'm gonna say overall, it's a B book. And I think I'm being, I'm taking myself out of my nostalgia, because if it was nostalgia, I would just give it A's all around. <laughs> uh, I didn't. I thought you weren't gonna grade it, because now, now you put me on the spot. Because I'm I'm not gonna be as high as you, and then I, I I run the risk of sounding like I didn't enjoy it, but I did. I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, I don't think it's a particularly great cover. I don't think it's a bad cover by any stretch, but it's a little wonky from a cover designed aspect, especially the fact that um, Spider-Man is essentially showing you his ass as he as he drops down to the bad guy. It's just kind of a weird pose for for the cover, and the way he's colored and just the angle of his face and the mask and everything almost reminds me of when I forget exactly the era, but sometime in the seventies there were, there was a string of issues as part of an ongoing storyline where he had a Spider-Man costume that he'd actually like bought or stolen from like a costume shop. So it wasn't even actually yeah, that his, was his shoes. One thirteen around there. Yeah. Something like that. 
And that's kind of what this reminds me of just by the angle of everything. Um, but that said, I mean, it, it does kind of catch your eye. And I actually like the spider signal being a uh, black and white beam like that. I think it actually looks kind of cool. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think I'd go, a I think I'd go a B minus, uh, on the cover. Um, but I, I do like, I like the use of color and I, I like that it does really grab your eye. Um, the interior art, I really like a lot. And I especially, I don't know what exactly is going on with the, I don't know if this is just the particular scan I'm looking at or if this actually is, well, if you have the physical copy there in front of you, you can tell me, but is the, is the, I don't have it in front of little, me. Oh, you don't. Okay. Cause it, it almost reminds me of a Charlton book in certain aspects, the way that it's colored because the color is very bright and vibrant, but also a little odd. Um, Spider-Man, in the bulk of the book, his coloring isn't so much red and blue as red and purple. But I kind of like that because in the second Superman uh, and Spider-Man team up in that Marvel Treasury he's often colored more purple than blue in that to differentiate his colors from Superman. And I kind of like that look. They didn't do it often, but whenever they did it, I actually kind of like the purplish look more than the blue. I think it just looks cool. And it lends more to him being kind of a, a you know, quote unquote, spookier character, you know, being a spider and being, you know, more comfortable in the shadows type of thing. I don't know. That just somehow it works for me. I really like that look. Um, I, I like the look of the the molten man. I mean, he's always been one of my my more favorite villains. I, I always thought he was kind of cool, even though he's a little goofy too. But he's got a cool look to him, and I like later again. You know, he has more of the heat powers and all. I, th I thought he had a cool power set. Um, so yeah, I really dig the art a lot, and the fight is cool because the fight has real weight to it. I mean, you can kind of feel the the blows from the fight, and I think that's neat. I, I like when things don't just look staged but they look like you're catching it in action like it almost moves as you're reading it I, I really like that and I think Ditko did a great job with the fight stuff um, in here there is a little bit of wonky in the in the art though um, some of the faces and like on page 15 there's kind of a, a coincidence was this 15 or 19 maybe that's page 19 oh it's page 19 second panel when Peter comes walking in looking for Betty and that uh, the substitute secretary there is turning her head that is a very Ditko pose that I've seen a lot of times before and it looks very unnatural to me like she's turning her head just a little bit farther than, than people actually can turn their head and it just looks a little odd to me hmm. um and then the, the close-up of Peter's face at the bottom of the page, look, it just looks really weird. He's kind of, I don't know, he's just got kind of a dopey look and a kind of a doughy kind of thing with it going on with his face. But those are, I mean, really minor criticisms. I Overall, I really enjoy this art a lot. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's quintessential Spider-Man. It's good-looking stuff. Um, so art-wise, um, yeah, I'll go a B-plus on the art. I think the art is fantastic. And I would go higher, but it's just I know I've seen other um, Ditko Spider-Man stuff that I liked even more than this one, but this is really good. And then story-wise, eh, 
that's where it's going to take a hit because I don't think it's much of a story, honestly. Um, it's not bad or anything. It's just it doesn't really move the narrative forward. There's not really any character development. It's really a, just a string of events for convenience to get the two together so that they can have a, an epic fight right in the middle of the book. Nothing wrong with that. It's just not really you know original or, or that sort of thing. So I think story-wise, I would, I would give it a C plus. Um, just because it, it doesn't really do anything other than you know stage the fight. But that said, um, once again, I think this is a, a nice illustration of you know it being greater than the sum of its parts. Because altogether, I mean, just a fantastic fun issue. I mean, if you just want to read something that's that's fun, it's light, you'll get a chuckle out of it. You know, you'll thrill to the fight. And then, eh, you know, you toss it aside and go on to the next issue. This is, I mean, this is that kind of comic. And I really like, you know, I like that. Not everything has to be, you know, war and peace. You know, sometimes it's fun to just kind of pick something up, breeze through it and go, oh, that was fun, you know, and then you're done. And exactly. that's kind of what this issue is. So that said, I, I think I'd give it a solid B in that aspect. It's it's fun. It's a really just fun issue of Spider-Man. So we're pretty much in the same place. A yeah. little, little different route to get there, but we're pretty much in the same place. And I think the amount of time we've spent just talking comics in general and talking this book has answered my question of whether or not we're doing your book today. <laughs> well, I'm so glad I took the time to read it and synopsize it and all. <laughs> well, but we're not going to shit can it. No, no, I'm just teasing. That's, that's perfectly fine. We're, we're going to take a look, and just for anybody who's listening and wondering what we're talking about, uh, Scott had picked issue 294 of the Legion of Superheroes, which is the final issue of the Great Darkness Saga. <clears throat> My suggestion is going to be that we cover the entire storyline, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, either the whole storyline or, or again, if you just want to do just this one issue because it is the final issue and, and you know, and then just talk about it, you know, more in that context of, you know, its its reputation and its historical, you know, historical significance. So, yeah, you're right. I think it could be I didn't intend for it to be a, a long discussion or what, but I think it could that could very well turn into one. So, yeah, I'm all right with that. So. That's something for people who listen to us and actually like what we do to look forward to. And I wouldn't mind, uh, you know, if, if we can get a uh, uh, either a, a fellow Superman fan like Dave or, or somebody that's, you know, deeply invested into the Legion of Superheroes that wants to join us for that one. I wouldn't mind that either. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I, you know, I don't know. It's always hard. Lately, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit, lately it's been hard to try and sync our schedules. Uh, unfortunately, right. life tends to get in the way sometimes. And, uh, you know, we're all doing our best to do what we can on the show, but it's not always easy to get a, an episode out to you every week. So I hope I hope it's appreciated. That's all. Anyway, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Scott, for being my co-host. And we'll Absolutely. see you next week. Bye. I'll miss you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email 
at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.